0: Praise, we had another word. Father, um, I listen to those words, and I'm reminded as we think about Exodus 20 and the law that the new way is through faith in you, and that the new law is your spirit in us producing fruit, and that the new law is love, and joy, and peace, and kindness, and goodness. Goodness, there is no law against such things, God. So, by your Spirit, would you form that in us, Lord? Pray this name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be in Exodus 19 and 20. Before we do that, I started it last week. We're going to do this for a couple of weeks here, but I want to give a little bit of a stewardship, how we talk about money, little two, three minute deal. Um, it's interesting. If you look at the life of Christ, that he talked about money uh, fairly often and what it looked like in our lives. And we want to be a church that um, doesn't Uh, err on the side of talking about it too much or in unhealthy ways or never talking about it. I mentioned that a little bit last week so we want to talk about it well and we said last week that one of the gifts of stewarding our money back to God well is that God does something in us and God does something in the people who receive those gifts and so this week I want to just talk about Real quickly, two minutes, why do we give? Which is, you know, two minute why do we give talk is going to be fun, right? So Old Testament, how they dealt with money and how they dealt with giving back to God, there's two key terms. One is the idea of first fruits. That when they receive whatever payment they receive, that the first act of giving was not a bill, it was back to God. And that did something in their life and in their heart as they did that as the very first thing. The second piece is the idea of a tithe. That often becomes debated in the New Testament. is: Do we still submit to the idea of a 10% tithe? But in the Old Testament, they were called to give 10% of what they made back to God. Um, I would say that Scripture in the New Testament does not teach that 10% tithe is a mark of what a, a faithful Christian has to do. But if you look through all the different passages around giving, I would encourage you to look at them. You actually see words like generous, sacrificial expectant, cheerful givers. And the question should be, does that describe us? And we're going to look at the law this morning. If it's 10% only, that becomes law, and it does something probably unhealthy in us. But if we think about how we give and who we are in the act of giving, that's what we're much more concerned about. As we give, are we cheerful? Are we generous? Are we sacrificial? Are we expectant? Do we believe that God's going to do something? So how that plays out into a very practical way here at Crossview, this one local church, this one embodiment of God's local church here, is we have something called a budget. And the budget helps make the life of our church happen, right? And so in the last week, from where I sit, I want to share with you some of the things that I saw your money make happen, the money that you gave back to God, make happen in our church. So, uh. Ashlyn mentioned that we have missionaries in town, the Groots, who are supported by our church. And that's part of what you give towards. I met with somebody this week talking about a ministry that that we support called AVA, about advocates for victim of abuse. And that's part of what your money goes to support. Uh, I saw a small group, this is really cool, saw a small group of men in our church band together to help out a guy who had nothing, was getting into an apartment. They furnished his whole apartment. That happens through the small group. Life of this church. Uh, I watched our deacons handle a couple of situations where they were able to give money to people in really hard situations, and that was money that you gave cheerfully, generously, expectantly. On the heels of raising 90 plus thousand for Team World Vision, you gave 25,000 more to build schools in the Congo. That's expectant, generous, cheerful giving. A really great thing happened on Friday. Our staff would, would say this is one of their favorite things is they got paychecks. When you give, the staff that helps lead into the ministries of the church gets paid. It happens. Thursday afternoon, I, I, I got to see a group of our, our, our seniors, friendship builders, in rooms one and two, packing boxes for Operation Christmas Child. You know what else happened in that room? They had lighting and heat. When you give, that's the type of thing that actually happens. Fam Jam on Wednesday night, just so many other things that that we could talk about. But when we give cheerfully, generously, expectantly, God does something. And we also believe that God is going to be calling us to some new and exciting things in the years to come. And part of that is dependent on how we give faithfully back to God. Okay. Again, that's the first message. Now we jump into Exodus 19 and 20. If you're new around Crossview, we're doing a year-long series. not not sort of normally what we do, but we're using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. We're going from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible and getting an overview of God's story And uh, if you don't have a Wayfinding Bible, we say it every week, we encourage you to get one, bring it to church. If you can't afford one, go to the table in the back. We will happily, happily give one to you. But here's where we are so far. We started in Genesis 1 and we saw God's creation. And then Genesis 3, we saw the fall, this unbelief that God was who God said God actually is. And they disbelieved that and they believed that they could be God. And then we saw in the rest of Genesis that God was working through these semi-dysfunctional families. And then we come to Exodus. And God enters into this relationship with Israel in Exodus. And in their slavery in Egypt, he frees them from slavery. And we see their journey with God, and we often read our story into that, which is so good. But we see this, this journey of faithfulness and unfaithfulness and how God enters into that. And as we jump into Exodus 19 and 20 this morning, I want to say that, that often this can become sort of a textbook. It's not a textbook. Scripture, especially these Old Testament narratives, it's story. It's powerful story of God and his people, of kings and subjects, of parents and children, of God putting boundaries around his people so that they can faithfully be his people. It's a powerful story. And so... We have a lot to cover this morning. We're going to go a little over what we normally do, uh, but it's, it's good stuff that we need to understand as we read further in Scripture, further in God's story. Exodus 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says this. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before the Lord. The Lord God called him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I told the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings. That's imagery. didn't actually carry them. It's this idea of God's protection and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be the kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. That idea of holy nation, that's the only time we see it in Scripture. And it combines this idea, nation, this this word for political state, with the idea of holy, which is sacred, that they were to be set apart the idea, and this is connected to what the law is going to help them do, is that they were called to bring everything that they were and have into service for God. That's how they were going to be God's people. And the next chapter will define what that would begin to look like. Verse 7. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. If you know much of their story, that happens for about two days. And then they rebel, right? So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in the thick cloud, Moses said, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you, then they will always trust you. Again, that was an up and down journey. Moses told the Lord what the people had said, then the Lord told Moses go down and prepare the people for my arrival, consecrate, set apart them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. It's interesting, as we go through this, this is, this is language that we don't often see about people relating to God. I'm going to talk about that for about one minute at the, the, the end of the uh, reading of chapter 19. Verse 11 says, Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai and all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people. Be careful. Don't go up in the mountain. It even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to, get, to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. This is, we don't read this type of thing, Right? It doesn't make sense. What does it mean? However, when the ram's horn sounds, a long blast, then the people may go up the mountain. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day, and until then abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and in, in the nations around them, in their religions too. That, that was common. When a deity came down and interacted with that deity's people, this is the type of thing that would happen. And a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from the ram's horns, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of a fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord God came down on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, so Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses, Go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries, to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. The Lord Moses protested, protested the people, cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off the boundary all around the mountain, to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, Go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. It's a fairly intense chapter. Like, is that how we're supposed to come into worship? This is how we're going to do worship from now on. Fire, smoke, we're going to have little boundaries that if you cross it, we will stone you or shoot arrows at you. Sounds like a great worship time, right? Here's the thing we can take away. This I want us to sit in chapter 20 more, the, the Ten Commandments, because I think there's something we need to take from that. But... Um, we read a passage like this and it doesn't make sense because often, and, and this, is, this is part of how we see God. Often we are on, on basically two extremes. One is we see God as friend. We sang about it earlier and we should, we should see that. John 1 tells us that God came down and dwelt among us. The message version of John 1, 1 14 and 15 literally says that God came down and moved into the neighborhood. It's important that we understand that God is with us, that God is near us, that God is friend, that God sticks closer than a brother, amen? Here's something we don't think much about, though. God is holy. God is completely other. God is transcendent. He is beyond who each one of us are. And we need to understand that as well. We need to understand the holiness of God. because Part of what we learn in that is not our shame and our sin, but the invitation out of our sin. God is completely other. God is transcendent. I think even when we worship, when we view God together, we need to understand both sides of that. And I was watching the words to our songs this morning. We got both sides. That we tremble when we talk about God. And we should. Yet God is near and God is with. Okay. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. It's intriguing. Often when you think of the 10 commandments, we usually just jump right into the commandments. And we forget how it starts and it starts with grace. The 10 commandments starts with it starts with naming who God's people were that they were in slavery but now they are relating to God. They are God's people. That God has brought them out of slavery. And here is what it's going to look like. The definition, the law of what it will look like to be God's people. Verse 3. You must have no other God but me. And you can imagine God's people hearing this. Moses bring, brings it down. They're like, for sure. If you gathered a bunch of rabbinical scholars together and said, what's the most important commandment? They would say the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And the Shema says, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That's the most important thing. They're listening, like, game on. We got it, God. Let's stop there. We got that one. And then it keeps going. You must not make for yourself an idol. Think about their journey in the wilderness. Do they make idols? Yeah. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind um, or an image of anything in heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins Of the parents, upon the children, the entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish, unfailing, that's covenant language, unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Um, Sometime in the future, we're going to do a series on idols. Because this language of idols, we read it like, ah, okay, they bow down to an actual idol, they build a golden calf. I don't get that, but we worship at the feet of so many idols around us. Money, power, success, relationships, whatever it might be. We bow to so many different, there's a great little book by a guy named Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods that is absolutely fabulous about idols. And what, is it, what does it mean to see those idols and, and turn from them and be invited into grace? Okay, let's keep reading. And we're just going to touch a little bit on, on a few of these. Verse 7. seven. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. If you know much about the Old Testament, when it came to names of God, they often didn't say Him or they didn't write out the whole of the name because there was something wholly other about the name of God. Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. I grew up in a home where we couldn't even say the word gosh in a flippant sort of way. Because there was supposed to be something sacred and other about the name of God. And I believe still that there's something about that. That too often we throw out the names for God in flippant sort of ways. And it is so other than who we are. Verse 8. Remember to serve the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You have six days uh, each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among among you. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day He rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Again, we could do a whole talk around what does it mean to live in the rhythm that we create were created for. Like we are created for a six-in-one rhythm. I'm not saying that Sabbath, is the, the Old Testament law, we have to practice it the exact same way. Jesus starts to nuance that in the New Testament, right? But I believe we're created to live in a certain rhythm. You know when you're working too much and you're not having the margin and rest that you're supposed to have, you know how unhealthy you can be. Another. That's for another time. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother. Then you'll live a long full life in the land uh, the Lord your God is giving you. And By the way, th- this list that goes on now, Jesus interacts with a lot of it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven. And we could read through it. We could say, okay, who in this room uh, committed murder this week? Raise your hand. And if you did, please don't raise your hand because we're gonna have to stop the service and be a whole other experience. But who was angry this week? Who lusted this week? Who was envious. And, that, that's, that's where Jesus, and even these, it's not just about the commandment, it's about the heart. Verse 13, must not murder, must not commit adultery, must not steal, must not testify falsely against your neighbor. That's one a lot of us could sit with a little while, right? What does it mean to speak good of those around us? Verse 17, you must not cover your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling in fear. And we're going to, for time's sake, we're going to stop here. You can read down through the end of the chapter. It's very similar to chapter 19 and how they interact with God. But I want to talk about two biblical concepts that we need to not just get our minds around, but we need to understand in our hearts. Because they affect how we read the rest of Scripture and they affect how we see the New Testament. The first one is this idea of covenant that we saw in chapter 19. The idea of covenant in, in uh, Genesis, we saw two covenants. We saw the covenant with Noah, we saw the covenant with Abraham. And those covenants were very one-sided. They had some stipulations to them for God's people, but they were very one-sided. It was very much about what God was going to do in that relationship. And now we come to chapter 19 and we see this idea of covenant and it's about mutuality it's about conditions both parties have a stake in the covenant that is going to be given in chapters 19 through 24 we see it played out and it's not just a list it's not here's the covenant do these things it's in this sort of narrative form that it's about the relationship it's about this idea of how God and his people will relate and anytime we hear the word covenant Anytime we hear the word covenant, it should point us towards the new covenant, right? We see it alluded to in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, but we talk about it every month when we do the Lord's Supper. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. So this idea of covenant, this idea of the agreement that God has made with his people, and it's directly related to where I want to spend a few minutes here, and that's the idea of law. The idea of law. And the law was going to help God's people understand what it meant to be God's people in that covenant. And uh, we're going to try and cover the idea of law in about three, four, five minutes. There are books upon books that have been written around this subject. So I'm going to do injustice to it, but I hope it gives us at least a big picture idea of what scripture talks about with law. So law was nothing new. Genesis 1 and 2. One law. Don't Eat. What do they do? Eat. The law that we see now in chapter 20, um, I think the law scripturally probably has two big purposes for it. One is this, that they're given this law in Genesis chapter 20 so that they could be God's people. It describes this ideal human social environment, corporately what it meant to be together as God's people. And we see in their interactions how they mess that up time and time and time again. There's also a personal side to it. That the moment we read the law, even though the law, as Psalm 19 tells us, it's good and perfect and beautiful. But the moment we read the law, it points out something in us that is so broken and rebellious. That the law does nothing to create the state that it actually requires. That in reading it, it points to our own brokenness and rebellion. Theologian Paul Zoll, and I'm going to read a little bit from this book that he has called Grace in Practice. He says this. When we think about the law, that, that the law is good. It's, it's not a bad thing. But that when we read the law, it tells us that we are made in such a way that we instinctually re- but an act against the law in all its forms. And think about this. If someone tells you to do something, what are you prone to do? Or at least what do you want to do? The opposite. We're somehow DNA hardwired that when we receive law, we want to rebel against law in all its forms, not just in the Ten Commandments. Don't Tell me what to do is a cry that is wired into the reality of who we are. And the law in its perfection points out our rebellion. The law in its perfection, in its goodness, in its beauty points out our rebellion. It points out our need for control. Even those who thought they completely obeyed the law of the Pharisees, it pointed out their rebellion because they kept adding and adding and adding to it so others could be left out of it. By the time you get to the New Testament, over 600 laws in place. The majority negative. The law points out our rebellion. I think it's so important for us to remember as we walk away that the, the law is meant to describe this, this Perfect reality of what God's people were supposed to be, and we know they and we rebel against it, and it points to the human condition, right? You read the Ten Commandments, and if you're very honest with yourself, and if you actually peer into the realities of your heart, you see the rebellion. Like we said, chapter 20 starts with grace. Grace always precedes the law. And the law always points us back towards grace. My first day of work here, I remember it vividly. It was about 18 months ago, June. I parked out there, and I walked the little walkway, which we can't see, I don't think, right now, because of the evils of the white stuff that is out there. Oh, it's so early for snow, friends. We're going to start a second campus down in Miami. And in the winter, I'm going to go ahead and go down there. Um... But if you walk the pavers when you can see them, and I remember that day walking over those pavers and you see the Ten Commandments. And when this building was built, the Ten Commandments were put in there. And I I remember how I felt about that. Walking over the Ten Commandments and something in me got angry. Like, do I not understand this? You know, day one, I can't turn back now. Like, is this place all about legalism or are they all about the law? What, what, what is this? Why would they put the... I mean, were, we're New Testament... Why would they put the law there to be walked over? Remember, getting to the end of the pavers and looking up, and what do you see at cross view? The cross. The law always points us towards the cross. Amen? The law always points us towards the cross. We don't have time to look at... Jesus' relationship to the law, which he was the fulfillment of it. I would encourage you to look at that. Look at Romans 10. For sake of time, I just want to read Galatians. Galatians is, of Paul's epistles, probably relates to the law the most. And In chapter 3 and verse 19, it says this. Why then was the law given? And here. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sin. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we would be made right with God by obeying it. Listen, verse twenty-two. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Any time we interact with the law, it should always do things. It should tell us of what God's ideal is for sure, but it should point us towards the cross. The law cannot save us. The law cannot make us right with God. The law cannot give you the freedom that at the core of your reality, the divine spark that is in you, you want, I want, we all want it. As this passage says, it's only by believing in Jesus Christ. not just knowing. Sometimes we come and it becomes, is that a cognitive thing that I learn more about Jesus, I learn more about God, and in knowing that, that, that's not it. The idea of believing is understanding that God and Jesus Christ has done everything to make you free from your sin, to put you right with God, to give you the life that God wants you to have, that you desire in your innermost core. And if that is the gospel, if this chair is that story, Believing, trusting is simply saying, I believe, I think, I trust that this thing can actually hold me. And I sit down and I say, I'm done trying. I'm done rebelling. I'm done of shame. I'm done of anything that I turn to to make me right with God. And Jesus says, grace is offered to you. Paul's all in page 36 says this about grace, because this, grace is this thing that allows you to sit down, right? Grace is the thing that allows you to sit down. What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. The grace of Jesus Christ invites you to believe. Father, God, as I think about the image of walking over those Ten Commandments and looking at the cross, I feel like we all need to be be reminded of that every day. For some in this room, God, who maybe it's the first time that they've heard that there's a loving God who says, stop trying, stop rebelling, Stop living in shame. Stop living in power. And believe in me. God, I pray that they would do that today. They would put full faith and trust in who you are and what you've done for them. And then God, even when we've said yes to you, even when we've turned to you, when we've put our trust in you, it's so easy to live submitting to the law. to rebel, to hide in shame. God, allow us day in, day out to trust in the freedom of the good news that is your son, Jesus Christ. There's a new law that we would live as people of this earth. Pray this in your name. Amen.